Ladies and gentlemen, 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 gentlemen you are now, 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 now listening to two, 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 the P13 Podcast. Yeah. Welcome back to the P13 Podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Those soulful vibrations, I know I've used that one before, but... He's running out of descriptors of my voice. I'm starting to lose artists one at a time. It's okay. How about the Montel Jordan-like voice? Uh, no, too high-pitched? He's a little higher pitched than me. Who's the one who sings Started Back at One? Brian McKnight. Brian, Brian McKnight. Brian McKnight like voice yeah. is a Mr. Thomas Conway. Another great R and B artist. R and B artist. Way great better song. than me. I, yeah, but you still have the voice of for the microphone too. So True. you're good. Just um, talking though. No singing. <laughs> no you don't want to hear this voice sing. Are you sure? Did you sing at your wedding? Absolutely not. Chandler was there. Oh, you spoiled the name. It's okay. That's, that's okay. a teaser. That's a teaser of who you're about to hear. Wait about one minute, folks, and you'll find out <laughs> who that's referencing. Um, but as always, we're here to bring you another educational podcast. Am I right? 100% there, Mr. Kala. And we, as you've heard, you heard another beautiful a third voice, voice in there. Third voice. We're looking straight at him through the camera. We'll, we'll get to him momentarily. Just a reminder, uh, members or... You listeners, you can always comment on our Instagram at project13gins.com. Use the hashtag P13podcast to let us know where you're listening to this or if it has influenced or made any changes in how you've approached your fitness, your health. Let us know. Give us a shout out. Drop a line. Subscribe. Follow. We're still waiting for some shares. People, we are, are, still people are stingy on the shares, I noticed. Oh, no. Yeah. Show us some love, you know. We love and we'll show you love back. You shout, we shout back. You know, it's that kind of. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that reciprocation? Is that the right I think that's yeah. Somewhere I think right that's, around there. I think that's allowed. Fair enough. Well, shout out to all Not the new listeners. Invasive. If you're coming in new, if you're listening to this for the first time, welcome into the P13 podcast as well. Chose a good episode. Absolutely, this is a great episode. Uh, as you, as many of you other listeners know, though, we already love to knowledgeify you. On various topics. Yes, that's right. I said knowledgeify. It's not a word, but we're taking it. We're going to. Maybe it's a word in Canada. Maybe it's a word in Canada. Maybe I spelt it wrong in Microsoft Word and I'm still getting that red underline. So who knows? That's a stretch. <laughs> as you all know, though, when we know someone who is well educated in a topic, we like to bring them in, such as our past guests like Dr. Shannon O'Grady, Lucas Aaron, um, Jeff Wolf. Jeff Wolf. Don't forget Hefe. Hefe. Uh, even Chantal on the women's That's side right. of, of the podcast mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. uh, so we like to bring people in and which hence you heard the third voice in here, today's podcast. We have our guest here today. Um, we have brought him in to the podcast today to talk about a subject that we are all too familiar with in the fitness industry. You may get this feeling maybe when you stub your toe or when you finish, finish a strenuous workout. Some people are more sensitive to it than others, and some people may wear it as kind of like a badge of honor. Would you agree? Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. It's not not, not the greatest, though. Is no, it? no. But anyways. We're trying to change that. We're trying to change that. This Hopefully, podcast is one of the steps to exactly, do that. Exactly. Exactly. Today, we are talking about the very interesting topic of pain. 
Now, we have done a previous topic. If you haven't listened to it, we've done a topic on uh, back pain here. So take a listen back to our earlier episodes and how we uh, used to talk on this podcast. I've heard we've uh, changed our tones as we've gotten more comfortable in here. Who said that? Uh, shout out Andre. Andre. He's mm. listening to those on the yeah. drive. So up, Andre? Yes, we have done a little uh, episode on back pain, but yeah. again... We have brought in someone who's very much more educated in this topic and can provide another perspective on this. Uh, he is well-educated in pain science. He's a doctor of chiropractic and has generously taken his time out of his day to discuss this with us. It's the one and only Dr. Chandler Bowles. Okay. Yes. Woo. Yeah. Well, sometimes we like to Hello. do a clap. Yeah. You get a, you get a clap <laughs> yeah. as you, you come in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And just uh, follow up on that on how I know Chandler. So Chandler and I worked together back in our uh early professional career i guess you could say back in minnesota uh no this was nashville tennessee nashville, shout out tennessee. shout out shout out uh nash vegas what's up um Is that a thing? Dirt, uh, yeah dirty people nash. call it that these days dirty nash yeah, or dirty nash <laughs> oh, uh yeah it's got yeah they, they seem to have maybe negative connotations i'm realizing oh, maybe. um but, but it's okay real quick there. it's the oh, beautiful mustaches party here, oh sorry go ahead my bad oh go 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 for it go go for it go for it it's a, I think it's the bachelorette party, uh, like capital of the world. Yeah, that's a oh. it's a, it's a very personal opinion, but um, I think you're right I, there. I, it's between that and Austin these days. Although Scottsdale is a oof. third runner up. Yeah, um, maybe it depends on the 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 area of the country that you live in. But hmm. I, I heard a story of a guy that started a business in Nashville, where he basically I think had a hot tub. He made a hot tub in the back of his pickup truck. Oh, and, wow. And it turned into like a huge business. And I actually, last time I was in Nashville, saw it driving around. I was like, wow, that's crazy. That's pretty impressive. Dude's like, dude's like a millionaire now. <laughs> that's smart. That's yeah. crazy. You saw you saw me driving around there? That's awesome. Yeah, that was, <laughs> uh, that's you? <laughs> I knew it. I thought the I'm guy looked familiar. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> Did he look um, as, you know? Right. Good? Yeah. H hence the mustache. Uh, uh, that's the other thing to note. Chandler and I are both rocking uh, sick mustaches. Kala, um, well, my bad. I didn't. I didn't give him the memo on the mustache. Uh, I would have needed a six-week advance, though. Right. On this. That's the problem. That's yeah, <laughs> you can't grow it very quickly. Um, but yeah, so Chandler and I, we worked together um, back at a gym called um, Resilient, Resilient Health and Performance back in nashville tennessee uh those are fun days fun days different different levels of uh responsibilities i think for both of us at that point in time. dare i say maturity uh sure yeah <laughs> although i don't know if we progressed very far in that regard uh yeah i don't but, know uh, any steps i've taken yeah but yeah and then like like cal said chandler went on to get his uh doctor of chiropractic but yeah we can start with a uh, little bit more is there any other background you'd like to provide on yourself and uh how you've gotten to the point that you are now. I would certainly say it's a bit of a circuitous journey uh, to, to where I am now. But yeah, like, like Thomas said, we met at Resilient Health and Performance in uh, Brentwood or sorry, Nashville. I don't know. It's technically Brentwood doesn't matter. Yeah, um, it's the same thing. And uh, we met there, uh, quickly became friends um, and also the chance to meet his uh, now wife. She was training there as well. So it was really a uh, Really great experience working there. One of the clinicians there, Dr. Josh Rankins, was probably a really early catalyst for me wanting to just know more or understand more about the why behind, mm -hmm. you know, his treatment approaches and then 
in addition to that, like why we were doing what we were doing from a rehabilitation standpoint. And I guess I was, you know, day in and day out, I was left with more questions uh, than I was left with answers. And that's what I think ultimately led me to pursuing my education. And I went to uh, Logan University in St. Louis. Um, and yeah, I think I think that experience at Resilient was a pretty formidable uh, time for me. And that's what led me to go there. It was also at Resilient when I was exposed to my first, uh, I would say like my first clinical researcher. Um, mm -hmm. Well, excuse me, not necessarily clinical, but uh, spine biomechanics researcher, uh, Dr. Stuart McGill. And uh, I couldn't really get uh, enough of him and his material. And so that was an early exposure to research and understanding injury mechanisms and the minutia of how the spine is loaded and certainly how it gets injured. And those are like really early experiences that led me to, I guess, where I am today. If we want to dive in a little bit about like what happened at Logan and what led me to be a little bit more interested in pain science or pain research, I'm happy to do that now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Shed some light absolutely. on that yeah. for sure. Yeah. So I was uh, a trimester two student and I met Dr. Norman Kettner, who is the head of the Department of Radiology at Logan. And uh, he's he's unmistakable if you see him. He's definitely uh, older. Um, and uh, his his head is so big because he is so smart. Uh, his brain just <laughs> grew uh, twice in size. But he was doing work through Harvard with functional MRI, fMRI studies, and looking at how certain areas within the brain and different matrices and, and systems or network in the brain, how uh, fMRI uses blood flow, oxygenated blood flow to see like what areas might be more highlighted or more, I would say, implicated in different circumstances. It could be anything. In this context, it was pain. And more specifically, he was looking at how there was cortical reorganization uh, in the brain in patients with chronic carpal tunnel syndrome. And that was a big thing that he was working on at the time. And basically looking at how these structures in our brain, let's just use the like sensory cortex, like a small sliver uh, in our brain on both sides, there should be very well delineated structures uh, that represent our hands. Just again, as an example, in patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, longstanding carpal tunnel syndrome, what they saw was that that delineation, that separation in uh, like your hand, your palm, fingers was actually smudged mm. so that this long-standing condition, being able to separate even at like a cortical level, different areas of your hand, that was implicated in the long term with people who had this condition. And so that that particular work there was what led me to, you know, email him like four or five times until I finally got a response and <laughs> just to like talk to him and pick his brain and want to know more. And he, of course, was open and eager to discuss things and started slowly but surely just funneling me research and information. And it it was amazing, but at the same time, uh, a challenge because it's like, I don't know if this is an adage and I might, I might butcher it, but it's like, what is it? The more you learn, the less you ultimately know. Yeah. And that was what I, that's what colored my early experience at Logan working with him and learning a little bit more about what it was that he did. So he was a big, like I said, a big part of my journey towards learning a little bit more about pain science mm -hmm. and what underpins the development of chronic pain. And like I said, a little bit more like as far as what I'm, you know, able to talk about is probably chronic, like nonspecific low back pain which is a highly, highly prevalent condition. It comes for us all. 
if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. Low socioeconomic status, high socioeconomic status, male, female. I think it's the, the lifetime prevalence of nonspecific low back pain is, I believe, upwards of 84 percent, 84, 85 percent. So that some 85 percent of us will at some point in our lifetime experience a bout of low back pain. Whether or not that slips into chronicity is maybe we'll dive into a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, so Norman Kettner at Logan was a huge, huge reason why I started developing an, an interest in this. And, you know, a few years down the line from there, I was able to actually work, co-author a paper with Dr. Kettner and two of my brilliant peers and friends, Dr. TJ Williamson and Dr. Nick Hedges. They are also both out in Colorado at this time. And so we were able to publish a paper, uh, a two-part narrative review, looking at chronic primary pain of the spine. Mm. And we all basically mentored or were mentored under Dr. Kettner at Logan. And that's what it all culminated in was that paper. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. And I mean, just some of what you even mentioned in, in your experiences there lead to a lot of questions that I'm sure we'll dive into more down the line on the podcast. So now we know, I mean, how well versed you are in, in this topic. And I'm sure, as you said, much more to learn on it. But one of the things you mentioned was the back pain essentially coming for us all. So let's dive into some of those statistics on on pain. And I guess you can maybe differentiate between statistics on pain and statistics on low back pain. But let's let's dive into that and, and how that impacts society. Yeah. Well, low back pain, chronic low back pain has significant economic and personal burdens, direct costs from seeking medical care, indirect costs from missing work, also under the indirect costs umbrella, missing time doing the things that you personally find meaningful, spending time with friends, training with people. It's like at any given time, 7.3% or roughly 540 million people uh, worldwide will be experiencing chronic low back pain. And that's a pretty staggering statistic. Mm. I think what is a challenge in some ways is there's so many entrepreneurs out there that I think would lead a very susceptible public and a susceptible audience to believe that there's a, like a one cause model of low back mm -hmm. pain, that it's, it's because of posture or going a little bit higher to like the neck, like your neck hurts because you have text neck because you've been texting or that, you know, you're training incorrectly. And, and a lot of these things sound reasonable right? It, it stands to reason like, oh, you got bad posture, probably gonna have back pain. But time and time again, we see that this relationship between posture and low back pain, the relationship completely evaporates. When controlling for all other factors, posture does not have the role in low back pain that we want it to. That would make things so much simpler, right? Mm. Now, now, this is not, uh, I want to kind of draw a little line in the sand here. This is not to say that doesn't ever matter. Like right. this is a far reaching like outlier example. But if we have a patient who has uh, ankylosing spondylitis, which is, you know, an autoimmune, uh, an autoimmune condition that really implicates the spine and they have a deformity because of that condition, then obviously in that case, uh, posture is going to be a little bit different. We're going to probably care about that a bit more, but broad strokes with the general population, the, the fear mongering that goes on looking at culprits of back pain, posture has, you know, time and time again, not shown that it is 
definitively linked with low back pain and that it's not necessarily causal. And what's a more plausible explanation when it comes to low back pain is a multifactorial uh, fire, if you will. So there's mm. this, like, what creates the kindling to create this fire? Um, beliefs about movement, like negative beliefs about movement. Like if I don't move in this particularly binary way, then I'm going to have pain or, you know, sleep posture, which I, I always think is, I, I laugh and I, I don't want to minimize it because I, I, yeah. patients have asked me about it before and it's, you know, you certainly do your best to like listen and hear and, and, and what they have to say. And my, my biggest question is, do you sleep well? Like, do yeah. you get good sleep? And they're like, oh yeah. I'm like, well, I don't really have anything else to tell you. I don't think you need to spend X amount of dollars on a mattress or heaven forbid, a, a cervical pillow. A, I mean, put your money in crypto. I don't know. Um, but I, I just, I mean, there's, there's so many, there, there's so many better ways to waste your money. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> NFTs. Can that also be part of this conversation? I, I don't understand. Let's, let's, yeah, we can um, dive into that. Uh, yeah. Apparently, they're pictures that uh, people just value for various uh, prices. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, right. You own it. And then you I, screen, it. I, I screenshot stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going back to that, the, the factors that underpin the development of low back pain are multifactorial. And to reduce it or be reductive and say it's one particular thing is is an effort in futility. And it's, it's more about being dishonest at this point. But again, there are entrepreneurs that sell a treatment system or, or, or sell some type of device that help people like there's one that, you know, you can wear on your back that alerts you if you've stood, if you've been oh, stooped over for too I've long, it, it gives you like, yeah. like yeah. buzzes and or something. It's like a harness. Like, yeah. And it looks something really like that. And, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, look, people, you know, we do happen to live in a, in a free country. If you want the autonomy to, to do that and wear that, feel free. But it's probably not really changing your, your back pain. That would be my hunch. Um, and like I said, there's a uh, myriad other ways to spend your money. Mm. Yeah. But um, yeah, and I know there's, you know, like I said, there's a lot of different ways we can go in this conversation. I know I mentioned earlier looking at like Stu McGill's research and how that was a really early like catalyst for me and wanting to learn more about injury mechanisms and and how the spine was vulnerable and I think you know Thomas when we knew each other I was very much on this binary very rigid yeah. uh, approach to movement and the role that the spine played and how at the time I think I was I thought it was just this horrifically fragile piece of anatomy yeah and you know, fast forward to today, like I, it's one of the ro most robust, strongest, you know, parts yeah. of our body. And you look back at some of the research that McGill did, which is very valuable. And, and he paved the way for, you know, hundreds of research to continue to build on the model that he created, but he was doing most of his studies and these studies that were impactful, but they were done primarily in dead animals. Mm. And begs the question like how does that translate to a living human adapting human organism right you know that's the way i i've appreciated movement and particularly like loaded movements now compared to you know when we were hanging out listening to edm music uh oh, resilient yeah. is is certainly different um dodging laser lasers doubt. as dave ray would say oh god <laughs> what a guy, guy. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, 
but does that, I mean, does that make sense? Like if we look at an animal model and it does, it does show us a lot of really great bits of information for us to know and appreciate how the spine does react when it's under load, we can see that there's a really big discrepancy between an animal model and a live human yeah, with absolutely. You know, feelings and ambitions and adaptability. Yeah. 100%. So, well, so diving back into some of the background statistics on pain, let's uh, set a few de definitions. So you mentioned chronicity of pain. Let's kind of jump into the definitions around that. Like what would, what would be, what would you, or I guess whatever organization or governing body, what would you or they define as like acute, acute pain and chronic pain? Mm -hmm. So the IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, their definition of pain, broad strokes, so not, not starting a little bit more broad, not just acute or chronic, is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Actual or potential. We're going to kind of right. circle back to that in a, in a certain point. Uh, acute pain is something we can probably all point to in some way. You, you stub your toe. You get a blister. At, and on a particularly like vulnerable area on your hand, there is a normal healing process. Well, let me back up. Acute pain, an injury like that on your hand, we can point and say, yes, there is underlying tissue pathology. There's underlying tissue damage. And that is why I am experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. It, that area that is particularly painful will be susceptible to basically so looking through the lens of acute pain, let's say that you get like a blister on like the bone around your thumb for some reason, we can point to that area and say like, yes, there is underlying tissue damage. That's why this area is sensitive. It has two features that characterize acute pain. One, non-painful stimuli, like let's say you're running your hand under like warm water obviously in a normal scenario, like that's not, that's not painful. Right. Mm. But in, within the context of having a blister or that open area, that non-painful stimulus is going to be perceived as like painful. The area is sensitive. It's sensitive to non-painful stimuli in the same way that it's going to be even more sensitive to a painful stimulus. And those two terms, like no one's going to be quizzed on this, but allodynia is the feature where a non-painful stimulus still elicits some type of pain. And hyperalgesia would be an exaggerated pain response to a painful stimulus. So of course getting, you know, I think I had one here. Like if I get, you know, like poked with a thumbtack, like don't yeah, do it. It's, don't, don't, don't do it. I was trying to prove a point here. <laughs> stab myself. Uh, like, obviously it's, it's going to like not feel great. It's going right. to be a, a noxious stimulus, which is a painful stimulus, but I, I'm not going to leap out of my chair per se, unless I sat on it. Um, but in this context, it would be like an exaggerated pain response to an area that is injured. Right. So that, that's acute pain. It goes through a period of over, like over excitability, but this is adaptive and it confers an evolutionary benefit, right? If we are injured, it is a requisite to our survival to protect in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's acute pain. As we move into chronic pain, this has been largely agreed upon pain that persists after three months duration. Now I'm sure there's like a little bit of a standard deviation uh, there, mm -hmm. but basically that 
all normal tissue healing and adaptive processes have taken place. They've done what they need to do. And at the three month mark, pain actually becomes a condition in and of itself. Does that make sense? So like the yeah. pain itself is now its own condition, not so yeah. much an injury. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is where we start getting into like how this process persists. And there's a number of different reasons why that pain can last for a long time. For instance, coping skills or beliefs about pain within the context of low back pain. It was, you know, early on, I would say like pre 1980s, 1990s, the prevailing theory was that you needed to rest, right? And yeah. not do anything with that area. Well, now we know we can look back and say like, that was terrible advice. <laughs> yeah. In fact, the thing, the thing that is recommended almost in every first line of treatment for acute back pain without complicating and like red flag features is to stay active, to continue doing the activities that you find meaningful. And of course, there, there's, there's caveats there. You know, if you injured yourself doing a maximal, you know, deadlift, perhaps you don't necessarily have to do that again three days later, mm. but it is a matter of staying active and continuing to move. So how pain gets into the chronic territory, beliefs about pain that it needs to be rested until it feels better can ultimately persist over time and lead to more pain-related beliefs and fears. I mentioned this in, in one of the write-ups there, but the, the fear avoidance model as it relates to pain. As an example, like when I was with Thomas, when, I, when I, we were working together at Resilient and mm. I had a pretty debilitating bout of low back pain. I'm not sure if it was a true radiculopathy, per perhaps it was a disc herniation. doesn't super matter, but I know that I associated certain movements with pain. And that was actually like lumbar flexion, like bending forward and mm -hmm. rotating. Mm -hmm. And it was to my right side, not to my left. It was totally fine with my left side. Like give me my left side all day. But, but bending forward and rotating my right side, that was a no-go for me. And I associated pain with that movement even after that movement was no longer painful. Like, does that make sense? Like in my yeah. mind, like yeah. it encoded a memory mm -hmm. of that. And so I avoided that movement to a degree. I would consciously find ways to avoid doing that movement. Like if something was down on the ground to yeah. uh, the right of me, I would stand physically rotate my body so that I could bend forward and rotate the other way just to pick it up. Um, so using that as an example, we avoid certain movements that we believe are provocative, whether or not they are uh, or not, we avoid those movements and then slowly begin to even generalize to movements that weren't painful or provocative in the first place. Yeah. Um, it's called stimulus generalization. We start associating, well, now it's not so much that me bending forward and rotating to my right is the scary movement, but now it's just bending forward in general. Yeah. Can't bend forward. I have to find a new way to get something off the ground. Either I ask a buddy or who knows, but I start generalizing that those movements are painful in and of themselves. And with pain in my mind, I think damage. Yeah. Right. So every time I feel pain, my thought is I am damaging X, Y, and Z structure in my low back. And those types of beliefs persist, persist and get stronger 
that's the part that's 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 particularly challenging as it relates to low back pain. You get better almost at having pain. Yeah, that's it's kind of it's kind of a wild wild concept. And to to illustrate that a little bit, Paul Hodges, who's a researcher out in Australia, he did not one but two PhDs. What a guy. <laughs> what a guy. One of one of his like seminal papers, I think, it was in like 2011 or 2012 was looking at people with long-standing low back pain. And uh, as I mentioned previously with Dr. Norman Kettner, looking at that cortical reorganization in people with carpal tunnel syndrome, Dr. Paul Hodges looked at people with long-standing low back pain and found that there was cortical, quote, smudging in the low back, where these areas that are effectively supposed to be delineated, like this particular area represents this muscle or this piece of skin over like L4, just a vertebrae now has spread the receptive field has spread in a way that that perfect, nice separation no longer exists. And so, so at the cortical level, they found reorganization in people with longstanding low back pain, hmm. which I just find to be crazy, crazy wild. One more uh, thing that kind of highlights this is the, is the concept of, long-term potentiation again not really going to be quizzed on that but uh the synapses or our connections from our neurons get better and better the more we use them in a particular way or fashion like a good example would be a researcher a researcher from australia in the 90s i might butcher their name so don't quote me or do i don't care uh <laughs> dr digby sale um looked at, he wasn't doing research on Sounds hypertrophy. So, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I don't know. It's, it's Dr. Uh, Dundee. Anyway, he, um, so he was looking at de deconditioned individuals who had not had much experience. And I believe it was under a bench press. So let's say a very untrained individual getting under a bench press. And let's say they start with, you know, a 25 plate on either side, just as an example. So they got 95 pounds on the bar there. Well, for two weeks, they trained, I think, a total of six times. And from what we understand about like muscle hypertrophy, it doesn't take place within that short of a time frame. It takes a little bit longer for muscles to undergo that hypertrophy. However, if you compare their abilities under the bar day one, then bench pressing, it's, it's rigid, it's awkward. They don't know what they're doing. Of course, you know, they're different control, right? It, it's a lot more effort day one. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now we fast forward to day 14 and they are immeasurably more efficient. The bar path is much more consistent. They are expending a lot less wasteful energy. And let's say that they get like, you know, 10 more reps overall. Well, well, what happened? Did they undergo muscle hypertrophy? No, not necessarily. They got better at performing the activity as a result of better synaptic efficacy. Their muscles, instead of doing like boop, 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 it became this fluid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the fluidity of the movement there. And so I know that seemed like tangential, but as using that as an example, if we get down into the weeds of like the sensory relay system or like the pain pathway, those circuit, the circuitry that is involved in having pain can honestly get better and better the longer you have pain. Hmm. It's uh, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, and again, like I said, with that paper from like Paul Paul Hodges, there's re reorganization that takes place at the cortical level. Um, we have inhibitory 
uh, circuitry throughout our body. We've got inhibitory systems that prevent certain stimuli from even coming to our conscious awareness, right? Like we encounter things constantly that are below threshold for perception. Does that make sense? And some of the circuitry is involved. That's the purpose that it serves, not even bringing it to our conscious awareness. Well, in people with longstanding pain conditions, again, looking through the lens of longstanding, the chronic low back pain, that circuitry at one point was meant to be inhibitory is now facilitatory. So it actually amplifies pain in a way that it was not designed to. Mm. Again, this is in like longstanding pain states. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So a few follow-ups to that. You talked about cortical reorganization. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what that, what that is? Yeah. I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. I might butcher this again. Dr. Michael Merznick. Again, whatever. Uh, he, he's considered the godfather of the godfather of neuroplasticity. Now, mm, again, yeah. that that's just that's a super fancy word, which yep. basically means it's thrown around a lot these days. It's thrown around, yeah, yeah. It basically just means like learning. Yeah, you know, yeah. like let's simplify things. It doesn't need to be complicated. Like I get that language. You know, it, those words sound sexy, but really at the end of the day, it's a, it, it's learning. So yeah. he, he's considered the godfather of like neuroplasticity and some of the work that he did. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, with rhesus, uh, I believe it was rhesus monkeys, but looked at their, like like we mentioned earlier, like their hands, like how we have so many sensory receptors in our hands and they are very well represented in our brains. Like if we look at certain areas in the somatosensory cortex where we actually perceive sensations in our bodies, the fingers are beautifully well-defined, truly. I mean, if you think about it, they're literally mapped out. Like if you would draw your hand, as a turkey, you know, we're coming up on the, the holiday. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Just shameless plug. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, that me describing it that way is a very reductive model. But those areas in our hands are very well separated in our brains. And so his research was pre-intervention. He demonstrated that these areas are well mapped out. And so the intervention that he did with these monkeys was he had them press a lever, squeeze a lever like that. And they had to do so with equal poundage uh, or equal force with every finger. So all five appendages, I believe, in order to receive a treat. And he did this for a certain time period. And again, each time they had to squeeze it in order to receive a prize or receive a treat, they had to squeeze it with the exact same amount, exact same amount of force with each finger. Now over that allotted time frame, they did that intervention and they re-looked at their somatosensory cortex and what happened to the representation of their fingers. Well, this perfectly delineated structure in their brain was now represented by basically like, instead of this, it looked like that. Hmm. It became, it, instead of being each individual finger, it became basically a flipper. Got it. I think that was actually used in the paper to describe it, but it became this one unit where they couldn't actually, like if they wanted to, I believe, the monkeys did not have the ability to like separate right. like fingers like that. They began to use them in a like use dependent, use dependent plasticity. Hmm. And that changed how those muscles and fingers worked and also how they were represented at the cortical level. So that's, that's what I mean when I was talking earlier about the smudging or the concept yeah. of smudging. Yeah, those areas bleed into one another. And we see that in low back pain. And like I said, Dr. Kettner also saw that in 
carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So in the context of low back pain, that would that could essentially imply that perhaps the individual doesn't have the ability to, I guess, with their brain differentiate between, let's just say, for example, th- like muscles of the core. Mm-hmm. Pot- potentially, I don't. I don't think that paper actually answered that specific question. Yeah. Um, but I, w- I wouldn't say that it's out of the out of the range of possibilities that could be kind of what that is meaning or or i guess back to your discussion around synapses which maybe we can define that for the people in a moment here but those those synapses maybe don't communicate as well to certain tissues as they do to others or maybe they don't communicate well to certain tissues in the area of the low back or the core is that another possibility I would say it's, I would say it is a possibility. This isn't so much for like, this is mostly from like a sensory standpoint versus like a motor standpoint, like the ability to like co-contract or something mm. along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From a sensory standpoint, there is this, uh, like I mentioned previously, this generalization that yeah. takes place, like not being able to, uh, let's say like not being able to separate what it is that like you feel yeah uh, on your low back like if someone had was like poking so it's almost your low communication back with... in the other way essentially right. from from tissue to brain that that is right. kind of the smudging that occurs right um yeah. the smudging in particular does the smudging is taking place at like a cns level like at the brain level um yeah yeah not not so much at the tissue level there but let's just say like the receptors that provide information from our low back to our brain, something has gone uh, awry. And now there's this generalization of sensation in some cases. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any follow-up questions, Mr. Calla? Not at the moment. I have one. We're taking all this in. This is, this is interesting. This is very, well, very eye-opening for me. It's always good when we have the guests on because oh, it's, it's, it's eye-opening. So let's let's jump to, so we have some good definitions. Is there anything else you want to add on like, like pain statistics specifically? I think we covered, um, you know, some of the incidents and prevalence of it. Um, is there anything else that we missed there that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, I did want to, you know, if, if we look at prevalence or, or, or who who is implicated i know earlier i mentioned that back pain yeah. you know, just by statistic alone uh do come for us all yes. but kind of backing out of the low back pain for a minute and looking at chronic pain just as in like an overarching like an umbrella we do see that there are higher prevalence rates in women interestingly also military veterans people in rural areas and i i wonder if there's an access to resources mm-hmm. issue at play there and not that this is probably surprising to most folks who, who listen to this, but people people of lower socioeconomic status are also disproportionately impacted by chronic pain. And there's there's many reasons behind that. Certainly access to resources would be a big one there. But yeah, certainly I mean that plays a that plays a pretty big role in that demographic as well. There are some discrepancies in ethnicities, like Hispanic, like Latin X, African-American demographics, Asian demographics, it basically depends on the sample, I think, that you 
the sample population at play. I think that there was something I saw recently about non-Hispanic whites having a higher proportion prevalence, but you know, is that data skewed by the fact that they just sampled more non-Hispanic white people? Yeah. Something to consider. So there's certainly some, certainly if anyone wants to, to correct me, please, please feel free to do so. Follow-up question with the higher prevalence rates in women, is there any differentiation between like women that have had children or women that have not had children? Good, good question, which is, I think, a really easy, like, preface to me saying, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 which I don't is think fine. it's a reasonable question. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I, I don't actually know the answer to that question. Um, but I'll get back to you. We can accept that. <laughs> with all those more specific groups, you mentioned with the, the, different ethnicities and socioeconomic status that could potentially be resources, but like military veterans, women, could you shed any light on why you think that might be? Is it related to, I mean, with military veterans, I guess, I think trauma, Do you, is mm -hmm. it related to something about that with, with mental health perhaps? Yeah, good, good question. I think that certainly a reasonable hypothesis for the military veterans, what I can speak to most from like personal experience. So a, a little, we're definitely trending in like the anecdotal area here, but yeah. I worked for a federally qualified health center uh, in St. Louis for a while. And basically for those who don't know, that's, we would be seeing a much more marginalized demographic in, in that setting. And I was fortunate to work alongside uh, primary care providers, behavioral health as well. And that demographic, again, like I mentioned previously has limited access to resources. In fact, limited access to resources that I didn't even know were a thing because of, you know, the life that's been afforded to me, you know, just calling a spade a spade access to uh, education and healthcare literacy, being able to access people who can answer medical questions or provide reasonable information as far as why you might be feeling X, Y, or Z way. And kind of going along the same, the same line of thinking, there are certain behaviors that are modeled in that demographic, for instance, like smoking, which do typically follow a social gradient, unfortunately. So those at the lower end of the social gradient, there might be higher rates of smoking. And smoking is also linked to chronicity of pain. And as far as it's smoking being linked with the uh, transition from acute to chronic pain, I'm not entirely sure uh, about the answer to that question. But another thing to consider, and again, this is also very much in the anecdotal territory, some of the patients who I did see would confide about their, they were individuals who were experiencing homelessness. And with that came very truncated and challenging sleep, sleep habits. Mm. And one thing that we do know and can say with a, with a small degree of certainty is that sleep hygiene plays a role in chronic pain. Maybe not so much the development, but certainly perpetuating chronic pain. And that's because it, the lack of sleep can uh, sensitize the nervous system, broad strokes, can sensitize the nervous system in a way that can predispose people to experience pain in different ways. Like just imagine that, you know, you've gone a few nights with poor sleep, like your threshold for maybe experiencing pain has gone from like here to like here. So maybe something that was, you know, a week ago, like sub threshold, right? Would that would not be the case anymore. So it's reasonable to assume, I think, 
that in that demographic, individuals who are experiencing homelessness, linking that to poor sleep in some cases, not to mention all the other resource issues there, that that could predispose to chronicity and chronic pain. Yeah, I, I, the, the biggest thing here to to consider within that demographic and the people that I was able to see is access to resources was significantly limited. And even modeled behaviors within their community didn't necessarily optimize outcomes. Yeah. You know, like this idea of a uh, learned helplessness or I'm trying the exact word, vicarious learning experiences. And what I mean by that is we saw in some of the individuals, like not like pediatric or but like adolescent populations who learned pain related behaviors uh-huh. from their parents. Wow. And had there weren't really a lot of other forces or, or people at play or, or that could more or less provide more context to these yeah. kids or yeah. give them avenues out of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. So that kind of sheds some light on the behavioral aspect of, of pain. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's almost like a learned or could be almost like a learned behavior or habit. Right. And to kind of go a a little bit more with that demographic that I was able to see, this is now very well known in like evidence-based spine care circles that there are a number of things that can contribute to uh, longer standing low back pain or like hypervigilance. And that is some of the interventions that people are getting from people who provide spine care, like an over-reliance on imaging, getting x-rays, getting MRI, CT. I mean, we have done, by we, I'm like the, the, the medical community, there have been amazing strides forward looking at like MRI, like the resolution of anatomy on MRI continues to get immeasurably better. And that's, that's great in very specific situations. That's amazing. But think about it within the context of a let's say a marginalized individual with very poor healthcare literacy uh, getting an imaging report back saying that they have X, Y, and Z changes uh, in their low back, or they hear words like degenerative. Without that in appropriate context, it's probably going to create some understandable fear. Yeah. And and going into this like behavior, like you just mentioned, maybe again, this is a hypothetical thinking. Well. I've got these degenerative changes in my low back. I'm, I'm 35. I, I got an MRI for some reason, which is not standard of care, just between us girls. And, <laughs> and I see this imaging report and it says that I have these changes and I'm like, well, I guess I can't, I can't engage in the activities that I found meaningful. Like I can't, mm-hmm. uh, play football or I can't train. I can't do, can do CrossFit. I can't play with my kids in the yard. Cause I'm going to, something's going to break. I've got these degenerative changes. And that was definitely something maybe not to a T, but that was definitely something that we had to unfortunately unpack and de-educate people on from a clinical standpoint. They come in with imaging findings. How do you tell someone that the word degenerative is more appropriate to use the phrase age appropriate? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I'm not not sure how familiar you guys are or the people who are listening, but the rates of, quote, degenerative changes in our lumbar spine begin before we're even 18 in some cases. Mm -hmm. And like 
we see these changes or the evidence of disc protrusions or disc herniations on an MRI, like it increases like crazy with age. Like by the time that you're, I think it's by the time you're like 40 or so, upwards of like 40 to 50% of the people that are walking around every day have asymptomatic disc bulges and disc herniations. Just living their lives, pulling 500 from the floor, running yeah. around, like, I mean, not me, but like, yeah. in theory, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and so I think that there's a lot of damage that has been done to people with spine pain as a direct result of clinicians, clinicians' words, clinicians' beliefs, and over-reliance on imaging. And, and certainly all this is definitely, this is definitely out of my depth, but in over-reliance on pharmacology and all those things have their role. Like without question, yeah. those things, those things do have their role. But yeah, this, this belief of being fragile or having some putative image finding, I, I think has played a very, it's had a very, very deleterious impact on people with low back pain, which could have otherwise been mitigated pretty easily by saying like, no, keep, keep doing the things you love. This will probably like resolve on its own in a lot of ways. And again, I, I'm being very reductive here and I'm not, that's not intentional, but it's something it's the literature keeps kind of exposing this. Um, yeah. We've gotten better at imaging and we've, we've actually spent more and more on spine care and outcomes have either stayed the same or gotten worse. So, oh, wow. That ends part one of our pain discussion with Dr. Chandler Bull. Stay tuned for part two, where we talk a little bit more about treatment with pain. So we hope you enjoy and, and learned a little bit of pain here in part one. Stay tuned for part two, and we'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you again for listening to the P13 podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. This podcast was produced by Project 13 Gyms and a special thanks to Studio Pod Media for providing the studio space and additional production. So absolutely. You can find us on social media on Instagram at Project 13 Gyms. You can find myself at Kemifan. That is K-E-M-I-F-A-N. How about you, Thomas? Where can they find you on your social media? You can find me at Conway Bunga. That's C-O-N-W-A-Y. B-U-N-G-A. You can also check us out at project13gyms.com. And if you're in the SF area, come train with us at Project 13 Gyms in Lower Knob Hill.